You bring it. I always bring the energy. Welcome to Go Additive, where your hosts combine their real-world professional 3D printing experience to deliver valuable opinions that will help you peer behind the curtain of the additive industry. And now, Go Engineer's own Tyler Reed and Tate Brown. You know what I realized? What's that? We need like a we need a little segment. I I was listening to sports radio yesterday mm-hmm. and heard they did like a, a they they have like a twenty second baseball segment and it's just a dude goes just real quick through baseball like yeah. some of the highlights in baseball for the day because obviously <laughs> there's a ton of it so it's funny to try and cover it all in 20 seconds. And I feel like we could do some portion of our in the news or something that's 20 seconds, like 30 the, seconds. The local news does world news in a minute, that sort of thing? Yeah. Okay. Or well, or, or just a random <clears throat> news story that, that is not 3D printing centric, just a, a stupid news story. <laughs> Someone in the news. I think we could do a segment. Um, you know, something maybe on materials in a minute, something focused on new materials we've heard about or the like. Well, speaking of that, you just told me that you'd heard about some sort of, yeah, something, (laughs) something popped up on Reddit this morning about, uh, researchers 3d printing rhino horns in an attempt to dissuade poachers, like kind of destroy the market for rhino horns. I'm not sure if it was a new story. I think it might've been a little older and there's a lot of, how are they being used? Are they actual? I don't know if they're actually being used, but the idea is not to put it not, you're not strapping it to a rhino. You are, flooding the market with like quote unquote authentic rhino horns that did not come off of a rhino Mm. so Mm. that you're kind of destroying the market that poachers rely on to sell these rhino horns. Seems kind of like uh, there's another market that's like this already. What's that? Diamond. Oh yeah. It's exact. It's very similar. But I mean, you still have people that pay a premium for a blood diamond. Yeah, so there is a lot of debate on whether or not, you know, cr- does creating fake rhino horns is, or does creating uh, fake diamonds actually increase the demand for the quote-unquote real thing? So it, it there's does a lot of debate. some jobs. Detection of the differences. True. You got to have experts. (laughs) True. Although if I've, uh, what was it? What's that show about uh, the Hoffman guy on Netflix? Making a murderer? Oh, yeah, that's right. What is that? Murder amongst the Mormons. Murder amongst the Mormons. This guy was Which is relevant to us because it's right here 
in our hometown, essentially. Yeah, actually, my grandpa was a crime scene photographer for the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Department. And unfortunately, he passed away in the mid-90s. And I was watching that whole documentary, honestly, just hoping to catch a glimpse of him uh -huh. in the background because there were many you know, people from his department there in the background of all of this archival footage. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't see him. Dang it. Yeah. But anyway, what we learned is that experts are always one step behind counterfeiters. Absolutely. That's the name of the game. I mean, think of it. What If you've watched, uh, there's another, there's a, a documentary on Netflix that's about blood doping. Yeah, Icarus. Icarus, and it is incredible, but it's the same deal. It's, it's the, the cheaters are always one step ahead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that kind of reminds me of a topic that I'm not prepared to talk about right now, but I've always been curious about when is the blockchain going to merge with 3D printing? Uh, blockchain being a technology to be able to verify authenticity. And that's That would be one way to describe it. And I don't know if you caught this, but Stratasys announced a partnership with a blockchain company. I didn't. It was a couple weeks ago. And I've been curious about this because there are certain blockchain technologies that are positioning themselves to verify authenticity within manufacturing supply chains. Does that make sense on some level? Mm, how is this applicable to 3D printing? What needs to be authenticized? Well, there are different things. Uh, you could potentially use it to authenticate material, material type, batch, etc. You could also use it to verify authenticity of the parts themselves. So if you were selling into um, a market, there could be uh, some utility there. I know BMW is looking into a blockchain technology called VChain for this reason. I mean, imagine you're a buyer and... Uh, you have to have trust in the parts that you're buying, right? Yeah. So how do you do that? ISO certifications. Um, I don't know. You'd probably have to have your own set of qualifications. Yeah. Yeah. And blockchain would help with that. It could. Hmm. For example, all right, so a big news story outside of 3D printing this week is, hey, we're going to refocus on the origins of the COVID-19 virus, right? And we're going to go back to China in the Wuhan labs and look at documentation and test results and things like that from early on. How do you verify the authenticity of that documentation? It's difficult. You have to have some sort of underlying technology that you can rely on to be pristine. And that's what blockchain at its heart is. It can be trusted because it's verified. It's a, it's a deep topic. 
but <laughs> the long and short of it is I've been watching for some uh, some of the OEMs to embrace it. And the first one that I've, that I've noticed, it just happens to be Stratasys. Hmm. But the technology provider, I wasn't, I actually wasn't familiar, familiar with them. Did you look it up? No. Okay. Yeah, we'll have to talk about this at another episode. Yeah, you said you weren't prepared to talk about it. I'm not. I definitely am not. <laughs> Don't even know what blockchain is. <laughs> I'm still at, you know, at lunch I go to to lunch with all these guys that are just neck deep in crypto. Oh, yeah. So blockchain obviously has a lot to do with that too. And it just makes me feel unsafe. It just makes me feel... Really? Like my whole life, yeah. Like nothing is trustable and everything's just kind of up for grabs, including, you know, if you decide to put all your money in crypto, it could be yeah. gone tomorrow. Yeah. Could vanish. It could. Vaporize. Well, it doesn't vaporize. It still exists, just probably maybe not in your possession. Right. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Or it could be in your possession, but behind a password that you do not have access to <laughs> yeah. any longer. We've talked about this. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, can you imagine your life savings is there, you can see it, but you forgot your password? Yeah, that would be horrible. I mean... And you only have so many attempts before it just locks it up? That That's the story of that guy in Northern California sitting on what at one point was worth $240 million US dollars. Who knows what it is now? Um, or people deleting old wallets or, you know, I actually did that myself. I had this coin called Dash and I had it on my phone. You know, I never thought twice about it. I got a new phone. I wiped my SD card. That Dash is. It's out there though. It technically exists. But no one can, no one has access to it. It both exists and it doesn't exist. Because there is no, it is in the books somewhere as existing, but uh, my SD card was wiped. So it, there is no ones or zeros that represent it. It both exists and doesn't exist. That's interesting. It's like burning money. Money has, like a US dollar has a serial number, right? Mm -hmm. So somewhere it exists. But if you burn it, it doesn't exist any longer. Gotcha. Well, guess what? What? The value of money doesn't exist anywhere but in your mind. That's true. Same that with true. Bitcoin. I mean, that's so. just value in general. Value. No. Yeah. No, because if, if we're talking the value of a quality 3D printed part, for example, uh -huh. they're are measurable differences in quality, making one part more valuable than the other. Well, quality is intrinsic. Oh my Val gosh, value I don't is... want to get into this. What's that book? The Art of... The Art of... Uh, it's a motorci motorcycle Zen. book. Zen the and the Art of Motorcycle Repair or something? Yeah, Motorcycle Maintenance. Maintenance, yeah. It's yeah. all about quality. Well, quality... I, like I said, it's... You can't it's, define it. It's implicit, but value is not. You give give me the same high-quality part and give it to 
uh, an engineer at NASA and JPL. If they have a use for it, it's valuable. If it's valuable to them, it's probably not valuable to me because we have no intersection of what's useful to them and what's useful to me. So value is In the eye of the beholder. It's subjective. And the value of anything is subjective. I don't know. What, what has intrinsic value? Time? No. What? No. I don't think so. For a living creature, the most valuable thing you have is time. I don't think so. Why? It's because the concept of value is subjective. It can only come from your internal feelings towards whatever you're valuing or not valuing. Well, if time doesn't have value, then why don't you just go lock yourself I'm not in, saying, in a box somewhere <laughs> hey, I'm not and saying, twiddle your thumbs? I'm not saying time doesn't have value. I'm saying... You just said it. No. I said it doesn't have implicit value. It's not valuable just because it exists. What does one minute of time, how is that valuable to me versus society as a whole, human species. What can you do with a minute? I'm, I can do a lot with a minute. That's what determines its value. <laughs> that, I think that's part of it. We're getting, we're getting off into the weeds. Totally. All right. So check <laughs> this out. It's been uh, a couple weeks, a few weeks now since Stratasys has released information on some of their new technology, some of their new machines. And today, I know I, you know, don't think of this as an advertisement, please don't, but I do want to discuss more of the differentiators on two of the technologies that are new. One uh, is the Origin One by Stratasys. This is the uh, resin-based technology that started as a startup in San Francisco. We want to talk a little bit about why it's unique and maybe some of the customers that, uh, or people, situations, applications, where it's a good idea and a good, good fit that we know for sure. Uh, and then also get into the H350, which is your powder-based uh, system, similar to HP's technology. What makes it different than HP? And this feels like a lot. You think we can? I think I we can cover it can in a basic we? overview. Absolutely. It's, it's going to, I'm going to be relying on I can cover origin. You. Wait, what? I'm going to be relying on you on this one. Well, fill in the gaps. You have, I have like 10 bullets here. Okay. A little more than 10 right. on the origin one that and I can just kind of buzz through and we can talk about. You've been having some conversations, right? With, about yeah. these technologies. Yep. With customers. I've been so focused on the metals, I haven't been pulled into any of these conversations. So I'm interested in hearing how these conversations are going and what you're learning. Well, I think just something that covers both of them right off the bat that I have found interesting. We haven't had any production type systems to represent yet. Like yeah, the F900... 
is considered a production system, right? But it's FDM. It's inherently yeah, slow. There's, well, there's levels of production. So I think it opens up the next level of production in terms of throughput. Right. Yeah. So, for example, an F900, much, much faster than many, many FDM printers out there, much more consistent and reliable. But in terms of, you know, higher quantities in the thousands, it becomes a weak technology. Small parts. Small parts. There are niche applications where it makes sense. Yeah. So representing these machines that are here's the here's the issue, I think. Yeah. You have these machines that are considered production machines that produce superb prototypes, but they're not built for producing one-offs. Yeah. So the workflow. Yeah. Is what you're referring to. So it's a bummer because the the part itself, right? Like an engineer at the end of the day probably doesn't care so much about how it was created or what kind of time. It's like, what part can you put in my hand? Right. At the end of it all. Right. Does yeah. it represent uh, my part in ways that I need it to? Exactly. And will it perform the job that I need it to? So the answer with a lot of the people that we've met with is yes, this is the part you need. But Mm -hmm. do you need a thousand? Mm -hmm. Do you need a hundred? You know, do you need 10,000? And when? And these machines, I think just because, and we haven't got our hands on it, on either of these machines yet. So I want to be transparent. We don't absolutely know what this whole process is going to be like, but we have a much, much clearer idea now than we did before. Right. And we know that you're going to need for pre-processing, you're going to need Magix or NetFab um, for the origin system. Right. And Magix for the H350. The H350 will soon be integrated into the GrabCAD print platform, and it seems like they're a little more ahead of the curve on getting it implemented into the GrabCAD print right. environment. But we're still talking about two or three quarters down oh, the yeah. road. Yeah, it's down the road. Maybe this isn't going to be right year. away. Maybe early next year. Yeah, so I'm not trying to sell it, you know, because it's going to be part of the GrabCAD yeah. print ecosystem, although that's a huge, that's a big deal. If you've used GrabCAD print, you understand how that's beneficial. Yeah, it's a great software, but I wonder how much are you losing? Because Magix is a very mature piece of software, very capable, and has functions that uh, are like <clears throat> kind of niche. You know, for example, you take a very small part, let's say a part that's like the size of a penny or smaller, and you print it on the H350. Say you print a bunch of them, or maybe you only print a handful of them. Like those tiny little parts, moving those through the rest of the workflow is difficult because you have a giant cake of powder, you have to excavate it, and then you have to take those parts and blast them and clean them off. And so Magix has this tool to build a cage around parts like that. Mm. So it traps them and lets them 
go through the rest of the workflow in Brilliant. a much, much simpler way. So little things like that, you may elect to just keep using magics until, right. you know. And we're familiar with this, with Insight and GrabCAD print. Yeah, true. We're, we, we know still that even though a lot of the functionality of Insight has uh, moved over to the GrabCAD print ecosystem, it still serves a very valuable purpose at times. It's one of the most frustrating parts about being an additive, I think, right now, is that you actually are burdened with needing to know several pieces of software mm -hmm. and know them well enough to understand when to use each one. Right. Yeah, and I, I think we're pretty fortunate that up till this point, We've mainly worked in GrabCAD print. Now that we're representing some metals technologies, now that we are, we kind of have these these acquisitions that we've we're we're now dealing with learning the software. Now we have to do more. Well, and I would say there was a period of a couple years where it's been nice. Before GrabCAD print, we had on the PolyJet side we had Object Studio and PolyJet Studio, and they were different. And depending on which machine you were running, which generation, you were processing parts in one or the other. And we had Insight on the FDM side. We had Catalyst on the FDM side. Like, and then GrabCAD Print came out. And it's for a period of a few years, at least with the technologies that we had in-house, we could kind of standardize on GrabCAD Print. It was a blissful few years, but it's about to end. For a little bit. <laughs> we'll see. I, re I really think they're doing a good job. I mean, I've already seen screenshots of the H350 platform in GrabCAD print. Yeah. So I know they're working on it. I know it's a real thing. But it's also changing because we have more partners than just Stratasys now. Yeah. We have Exact Metal, which will be Magix or NetFab for the foreseeable future. We have Velo3D, which is Flow. And yeah. who knows? Yeah, I'm I'm totally fine with with learning proprietary software if the technology is important enough, and yeah. especially also Magix and NetFab, they're relatively universal. They're good to know. They yeah. don't just work on these machines; they work on other machines. Yeah. So it makes you wonder for how long, though. Like Magix is universal right now. Will it continue to be relevant five years from now? Hard, I don't know. It's hard to say. It is hard to say. But, yeah, I agree. That is one of the frustrating parts. But for the most part, you choose a technology, you learn to love your preprocessor, and that's it. You know, Obviously, if you're in an engineering group, it's always nice to have two or three different technologies that can utilize the same workspace. That's what's nice about GrabCAD print. Yeah. My PolyJet printer runs on the same slicer as my FDM printer. It's a familiar thing to me, and right. that increases my efficiency. 100% agree with that. And there's some old dogs out there still. You know, if you're one of those, you know, 64-year-old dudes, you're on the back nine of your career, 
you don't want to learn a new software if you've already, but you know that you need a new system. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. I, I know that sounds silly, but like that's for, for you to be able to implement a new system and be able to continue using the same so- software or slicer. That's a, that's a big deal. I, I think it's important for us to be able to empathize with users kind of looking down the barrel of a brand new software platform. It is intimidating. It can be overwhelming. In many ways, you don't want to do it. Like speaking to the value of time, how many hours of your life do you want to spend learning a new piece of software? Yeah, for sure. At this point, if that software is only going to be used to run one printer, I would much rather spend my time doing something else. <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm I'm with you there. So getting back to these machines, yes, we do have some unique, uh, not unique, but we do have to utilize Magix or NetFab for both of these systems. Yeah. Origin 1 and... The H350. What is Stratasys calling that machine? Which one? The the machine formerly known as the Origin 1. They are calling it Origin 1. Are they? Yeah. Stratasys Origin 1. Okay. I think before it was just called Origin. Okay. And now it's Origin 1. It may have been Origin 1 before, but they have not indicated that they're actually going to change the name. It's being labeled the Stratasys Origin 1. Eerily similar to some of Envision Tech's old machines and their and their naming scheme. Well, speaking of Envision Tech, this machine shares some of their materials with That's the Hankel Loctite materials. But as I understand it, they were developed on the Origin One system for the Origin One system. Huh. So, getting into my bulleted list, uh, I'm going to explain. This origin one as quickly as possible. Okay. Build envelope seven and a half by four and a quarter by 14 and a half inches is your build envelope. And it runs on a 4K light engine. I get asked every once in a while what the UV number is. The wavelength? Yes. The Mm -hmm. wavelength. And it's 385. Um, nanometers, nanometers. And this is also a thermal cure machine as well. So they're heating up the build chamber as well as, as curing with the UV light. One of the unique things about the origin one is the green part strength is very, very high on most of the materials. It's like 95% strength of your mechanical properties in a green state. How that affects the user is you typically need fewer supports. Okay. Because the green strength is stronger, you don't need quite as many uh, supports. The overhangs, you can go a little bit further. And I'm not sure how unique this is, but it sounded kind of cool. It only requires 200 milliliters more material than the part volume itself. Okay. So you're not filling too much of a vat more than necessary, uh, which anybody who's dealt with resins knows, you know, your the life of that resin is reduced significantly as soon as it get, goes into the vat. So you want to be able to recover as yep. much of that as possible and use as little as possible 
to begin with. That's the type of knowledge that we discussed briefly on our episode a while back about going beyond the spec sheet and the types of questions you should be asking when you're looking at a, a new technology. You know, what are some additional hidden costs? And this would be an example of one of those, right? Yeah. Yeah. So on that same note, material changeover. Mm-hmm. We know that that's something that's not talked about in the industry very often. This is something off the spec sheet. Material changeovers can be difficult with traditional resin-based systems, and they can be costly. With this system, now, we can correct this later if it's not this way. The way it's being told to us is material changeovers can take less than five minutes on this machine. So as we use it, we will update you on that, but having a five-minute changeover, whereas... With other machines, you may have to set aside a yeah. whole day because of the process. And obviously, when that's the case, you're not very incentivized to experiment with different materials. Yeah. The, re- the reality of our situation, uh, especially lately, now that we have these polyjet machines that have five or seven materials, and of course the FDM machines is that we have been very fortunate in having access to systems that were very user-friendly and the workflows were very simple. Yeah. (laughs) And something I'm trying to come to terms with is that as we build out this new lab with some of these more production-oriented technologies and the metal machine, our life is going to get a little bit more difficult <laughs> running the running the systems. Yeah. Taking care of them, making sure they're pumping out parts. Yeah. And yeah, just we're going to have to be a little bit more mindful about some of the decisions we make, what to print, when to print. So scheduling, queuing parts, it's going to become more important. And also probably maintenance yeah. of the machines. Yep. It's going to be our new lab will actually feel a lot more like a shop setting versus now it's fully experimental. It feels like an R&D lab. It, it feels like a showroom. Eh, parts of it. I think it feels more like a showroom. Well, I'm, I think this next one is going to have a shop vibe, a clean shop vibe. I'm talking like a machine shop ty- type. You think so? I hope so. I uh, I hope that we're producing and I hope that I hope we like these new systems. Cause like you said, we kind of have, we know what we've been into and it's been relatively easy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's turned us lazy. <laughs> well, and that, if anything, that says a lot for the products. So true. Um, getting back into the origin. Currently there's 10 certified materials. We've talked about one of the material suppliers. It's an open material platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main ones, DSM, BSAF, and Henkel Loctite. Mm-hmm. Fantastic material providers. We've talked to, on other episodes about BSAF and their Ultrafuse 316. Yeah. And we kind of, we talked about it. <laughs> if you're interested, find the episode. But It's called Filament Metal. What's filament the deal metal. with filament metal? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. 
but uh, they're a chemistry company. They're fantastic. Uh, also a familiar Loctite. We all know and love Loctite products, and we've trusted them for years. So that's really exciting because that ultimately is what makes these parts better than other resin-based systems. The shortcoming of resin-based systems in the past, they're brittle. The parts are not. You would never use them in an end-use scenario most of the time, depending on application. But most of the time, FDM is a better fit or you just have to go straight for the injection mold. Yeah, I think DLP technology is starting to really position itself as a technology that can create usable functional parts. Which I'm all about that. I mean, the Adidas shoes are a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Those soles, they take a beating and they're expected to and they are sold. They keep, they take a licking and they <laughs> keep on ticking. Yeah. No? No? Uh, Tough crowd. Tough yeah. crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an old watch. It's an old watch slogan. I am curious as to where that came from. It keeps a licking and keeps on a ticking? Yeah. Just the actually licking that word and that meaning of the word. Timex. Timex. All right. But the I've always... We're not from the South. I think the Lickin thing is is a Southern thing. I think the origins are definitely more country. Probably. I'm looking it up. <laughs> I don't... It, it never made sense to me growing up. I, I had no idea. When I'd see it in movies and stuff, I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? <laughs> Why do they call them licks? The use of lick to mean a short solo or fill? Oh, this is the musical term lick. <laughs> it's attributed to the the jazz reference. Yeah. Well, that didn't help us at all. This is a fascinating topic. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> back back to the origin. So this thing is about 10 times faster than a traditional SLA machine. Okay. Which makes sense, right? We're, we're projecting digital light instead of just lasering and having to trace out the entire cross-section. It's the difference between area and verse point. Exactly. Okay. Now, if you're wondering about achievable accuracy, it is right in line with injection molding. Really? So traditionally injection molding, you're plus or minus two to four thousandths. With the Origin 1, you're plus or minus three. So we're, we're dead center on there. Is that how they state it? Plus or minus three thousandths? Yeah. Across the entire build chamber or do they give a percentage? This is, this is how it, it was conveyed to me. Okay. Uh, I believe... On the data sheets, it'll probably give a percentage. Yeah, because you have, what, 14 inches in the Z? Yeah, said? 14 and a half. Okay, yeah. So, um, but no, just no coming out of the box. The quality coming from the machine should be close to injection mold quality. And I've seen the parts. I've felt the parts. You can do some things with this that you cannot do with injection molding. Mm -hmm. And you don't have parting lines. Mm -hmm. What you will end up with is kind of uh, the little support yeah. 
areas are going to show up, but that's no different than injection molding because you have the gates in injection molding. So those are all clipped and post-processed. So it should be similar. The parts are amazing. Yeah, they look incredible. They feel incredible. Um, and that's pretty much the main overview for the Origin 1. So unused resins are coverable. One thing is there is some equipment required with this machine. You need the sonicator and a UV oven for post-processing. So the sonicator helps remove excess resin from the part? Yeah. And then one of, I guess, another key point with this is because you're at 95% green strength out of the system, your post-curing times are shortened significantly. They're saying a half a minute to five minutes per side. And I'm not sure how that all works yet per side. Yeah. Or if the oven can cure 360. I'm not sure totally what that means. I've seen a promo video where the parts are moving on a conveyor, almost like a like a pizza oven, like a conveyor pizza oven. So the parts kind of go into the chamber that's, and then come out. Yeah, that's not this. That's not the base level option that. Got it. That they would suggest. That's a that would be an upgraded. Okay. Deal, but that's how quick it can be, right? It can be fully cured on a conveyor belt and pump out parts, which hmm. again lends itself to production. Yeah. Anyone in production's probably using conveyor belts somewhere. Now, the F770, unless you have any questions or, or things you want to add about the origin that you think I missed. I do not. Those are just the highlights. So the F770, what we know, we've talked about the piezoelectric heads. Those recirculate the binder. You're talking about the H350. Oh, sorry. I said F770, didn't I? Yep. H770, major correction. So on the H350, you've got the piezoelectric heads. They're recirculating the binder. I was under the impression that they were helping with the big wave technology, trademarked mm -hmm. technology. That's not the case. It's, it's totally just jetting the binder. Yeah. You probably knew that from the get-go, but... I was kind of confused on some of all of these things. The half fluid, the high absorption yeah. fusion yeah. or fluid or yeah. whatever it's called. <laughs> HAF. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. they call it half. Yeah. So um, that's, I guess the binder is unique in that it's one part. Do you know much more about I that? I don't even know. If, do they even really like to call it a binder? Because it's a fluid it's that a fluid. absorbs the thermal energy, right? Mm -hmm. And so all it's doing is it's occupying space between the powder granules. And then once the thermal energy source turns engages, turns on, the fluid itself is absorbing that energy, heating up itself to the point where the powder granules consolidate together so it heats up the powder does i'm not sure if then, the fluid heats up the powder the the fluid absorbs the energy 
it heats up, it radiates that heat over to the powder, heating up the powder. And creating and then, the binding. And then con the powder consolidates to powder. And that f absorption fluid uh, is, I don't know, how is it still is it still there? Does it evaporate? Is it a, is it a solvent? Do you know? I don't, but I do know in the industry with these powder-based binders, they're typically two-part. But this is not this is not how that works. It's not, not it's not like an works. adhesive. So the binder itself is not actually binding. It is there to absorb energy and to help them selectively heat the powder. Selective absorption fusion. Well, when you, <laughs> I understand now why they're focusing on that language because that's how it works. This is a little bit different than something like an old Z-Corp machine where you're basically putting down adhesive. Yes. Sorry, I'm checking a couple things out. No worries. So one of the unique things about this system on top of its unique not binder <laughs> yeah is the the way it's basically laid over the powder so it's always put on that layer of powder in one direction so it's unidirectional and in one pass it is laid on top of the powder and heated. Mm -hmm. Not only that, it does that over the entire build volume in one pass. So yeah. everything is being hit at the same time. So you're not having these heat differentials and things being created, these inconsistencies on the entire build volume because you're taking it in multiple swaths, say like... Um, you have one uh, bar that sweeps across the whole width, right? But yes. it's not all at once. It's sweeping across. So the the entire width is happening at once, but it's sweeping yes, across. That's definitely, thank you. That's more accurate way to put it. Yes. But that is unique. Okay. That so like, like on our polyjet printers, the print head is maybe one-fifth the width. And so it actually, it goes across the X direction and then it steps over in Y and then it crosses the X direction and it steps down in Y. Yes. This is just unidirectional, across the X axis, boom. But it does sweep across. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so it's not like DLP where it's hitting everything at the exact same time. I get, I get what you're saying. Why I messed that up. Nope, it's all good. So that creates a more uniform thermal experience. Now I understand what they're saying. Uh, when, when they've told us that, now it makes more sense to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And the system definitely uh, outperforms the competition in that way because now I can make bigger cross-sectional areas. So blockier parts, this is actually similar to the Origin 1. Both of these machines are capable of creating blockier cross sections. So I believe we are 
running short on time. There's probably more we can get to get into on the H350, but just to try and put a bow on it, both of these systems are creating very usable end-use parts. They are not geared towards producing onesie twosies, though. That's kind of the bummer. They're not going to be a prototype machine like an FDM. They're going to be a prototype machine if you need 20, if you need 30 prototypes, and then bridge to production. So these are going to help you actually get to production and in many cases replace ever having to get a a, a mold made. Both of yeah. these systems help in that regard. Yeah, they have the potential for certain parts. There's much, much more. We probably have some customer stories we can get into on the next episode, and we may have to do an episode earlier in the week. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, probably. You think we can do it? We Yeah, we can. It's just okay. a matter of putting it on the calendar. I do have one quick story. So we talk about DFAM quite a bit, and we've talked about it here and there, designing for additive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have also talked about how, like, Every technology has its own rules, and you have to understand that. Uh, It's one of the most difficult concepts around developing curriculum for a DFAM course is the DFAM looks different if it's on, say, for SAF versus P3 versus FDM versus whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and we've also have a, we have had a, episode on topology optimization as well. And topology optimization often results in punching a lot of holes in your part. So we had a a service bureau part come in this week and it was requested out of Ultim, which we know does not have soluble support. It's all breakaway support. And it's a big part, blocky part. And the, the designer had run some like quasi topology optimization on it. I don't know if it was actually optimized in an algorithmic way. It was just like, I'm going to punch a bunch of holes in it. And so the upshot is that it slowed down the printing process considerably because it was adding a ton of support material. And it also added something like two days of estimated time to clean the part to get all of that support material out of it, which made no sense to do that, especially on an FDM part where you can simply just sparse it out. Yeah. And so it actually, we came back and we're like, hey, it doesn't make sense to do it on this part, redesign it, take all of that work that you did, get rid of it, et cetera. It dropped two days off the print time and eliminated all the post-processing. How did the customer handle it? Were they open or were they resistant? Because like, hey, man, I did all this work I thought was really clever. So there were multiple people on the call. And this is, I'm sharing this secondhand because I wasn't on this call. There were multiple people on the call and the designer was sort of resisting it. And I guess his boss was on the call and no one really realized it. And he chimed in and was just like, just get them what they want. Like, just do it. They're the experts. Just listen to them. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it cut the cost of the part in half, just eliminating all that work. So you added a bunch of engineering time to it and you doubled the price in doing that. So DFAM, no one understand what that means. <laughs> that's that's my weekly little tidbit. That would have been a great like one minute 
story. It was almost a one-minute story. That was fantastic. Yeah. That's actually really useful information. Well, I think we got to call it a day. I got other meetings. Yep. We got to get running. Thanks. Let's get together early and try and get another episode out soon. We got a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. All right. Take care. See ya.